Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this panel discussion. This is part of the Institute for Government and the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge's review of the UK Constitution. It's the second in our series of events, um, which we will be holding as part of the review, and um, where we are investigating issues surrounding the UK Constitution, how well its core institutions are functioning, and discussing ideas for reform. I'm not Dr. Hannah White. I'm afraid that she has been unable to join us today. Uh, my name is Maddie Timo-Jack, and I will be chairing the discussion. Before we kick off a few uh, housekeeping arrangements, we will be live tweeting this uh, discussion from at IFG events using the hashtag, hashtag IFG Please do follow and tweet along. Uh, for those of you watching online, please do send in your questions as early as you like through the conversation. Um, if you do want to share your name and where you're viewing from, it's always great to see, um, but you can be anonymous too. Um, please, you can just use, uh, you can post your questions in the panel on the right side of your screen. We also are very lucky to be joined by a small audience in the room, and if you want to ask any questions through the discussion, then you can put up your hand, and we do have a mic at the back of the room, and I will indicate when we will take uh, questions from the floor. Uh, and just to everyone watching, there will be a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours. So this is an event about whether norms and conventions are still working in the UK constitution. In the absence of codification, the Constitution has relied on the principle that those who come to office both understand the unwritten rules and, convention and conventions that underpin the Constitution, but are also willing to follow them. That they are so-called good chaps, as described by the constitutional historian Peter Hennessy. I think we'll get into the discussion uh, whether or not we still agree with that as a concept for how the UK Constitution operates and whether we agree with the term good chaps at all. Um, but recent events and scandals have also raised questions about whether this model still works. Um, and this is an opportunity to discuss the extent to which it's a fair description of the Constitution how they might have come under, how the norms and conventions might have come under pressure in recent years, and whether or not further codification is the right response to those pressures. To answer these questions and more, um, I'm delighted to be joined by a distinguished panel. I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Haddon. She is the Institute's resident historian, uh, leads the Institute's work on changes of government, ministers, and the workings of the Constitution. And she's also an expert commentator on the history of government and civil service reform. I'm also joined on my right by Professor Meg Russell, who is a professor of British and comparative politics and the director of the Constitution Unit at the University College London. She leads the unit's work on parliament and has also recently conducted work on devolution referendums and citizens' assemblies. She's acted as a consultant to the Royal Commission on Reform of the House of Lords, um, was seconded as a full-time advisor to Robin Cook when he was leader of the House of Commons, and has also served as, a, as an advisor to several House of Commons select committees. I'm finally joined by Professor Andrew Blick, who is Professor of Politics and Contemporary History and the head of the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. He's written extensively on constitutional issues, is the editor of the Constitution in Review, a six-monthly uh, analysis of developments in the UK Constitution produced by the Constitution Monitoring Group and is also a senior advisor to the Constitution Society. Right, introductions out of the way. We will kick on with, crack on with the discussion. Kath, if I can come to you first. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us what is the role of norms and conventions in the Constitution and how important are they? Uh, I mean, that's an essay, obviously. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and weave that in and then and come to some of the issues that I think we're going to talk about today. Uh, conventions and norms, I mean, these are rules or principles that exist in our Constitution. Uh, they're, not they're not legally binding but they have differing degrees of um, permeability, uh, where they exist, who they apply to. There's, there's, you know, they're across the executive, also across parliament and so forth. And also, I mean, the first thing to say is that you get different types of them. You get some which have been created knowingly. Yeah. Um, you get some that have just evolved as principles over time and have been debated endlessly over time as to what they are, how they exist, how they've changed, etc. Um, you also, uh, they do change, um, and there is an awful lot of literature talking about the circumstances in which they change and the degree to which actors have to understand that they exist for them to exist. So there's, there's a lot about that. But the other thing that is important to say, because I'm sure we're going to end up there, is that these exist across 
all sorts of constitutions. It is not purely a characteristic of an uncodified constitution. Mm -hmm. But the issue um, with the UK constitution and the, the one that we're going to debate today is whether the UK has become too reliant on conventions um, and therefore whether it needs to change that, not necessarily just in terms of codification, but also, as we've been discussing over the past year, in terms of issues of standards and ethics, whether we need to firm up the various bodies that look into these kind of issues and, and, and thinking about who the constitutional actors are who help enforce those conventions and norms. So it's a much fuller debate about why they exist, how they exist, that, that we really need to sort of get into, I think, not just purely the question of codification, though it is really important. That's, that's a great introduction, I think, to the, to the conversation we want to have today. And I mean, I, th I guess following up on that is I feel like this discussion has, it's raised, it, the profile of the discussion has sort of felt more pertinent yeah. maybe in, in recent years, looking at some of the debates during Brexit about the behaviour of government or, or actors in Parliament, about whether or not they're following the rules that we think are in place. I mean, do you think, I guess looking at it through the historical lens, mm. do you think it's fair to say that we are in a sort of in a moment where we should be revisiting this question? Like how much has, has it sort of changed or become more pertinent recently? I think we are um, at a stage in which that, I mean, there's three different components of that. One is a question about whether we have just been too reliant on self-restraint and conventions and so forth in our constitution. Um, it is worth saying there have been many important times where that's changed in the past. Uh, one of the ones that we've been particularly focused on in the last few years has been the role of confidence. Um, the, 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 uh, an executive, a government's need to have the confidence of the commons in order to exist. And we can come to some of the recent debates about that. But you only need to look back to 1974 to see uh, Harold Wilson saying, I will only accept these kind of votes as a matter of confidence. In the past, there had been all sorts of different ways in which you might think a vote in the House of Commons um, said something about a government's ability to continue to command confidence. But he explicitly said, no, no, it's just going to be this. Mm. And in a sense, that was a change, but it was also just a sort of a clarification, a political clarification of his own circumstances. So the idea of pushing against norms, expectations, whatever, that's, that's always been there. The, the second issue, the one that we're really debating at the moment, is whether or not self-restraint is failing and whether or not people are too much pushing against um, ex expectations of norms and behaviour and so forth. Again, going back to the codification question, you only have to look at the US to see how a very strongly codified um, country with a very strong role for the courts still has those same problems of whether or not self-restraint. So even in, in the role of law, self-restraint is still really important. So we've obviously seen this, we can discuss it more about uh, the Benn Act, when mm -hmm. uh, Parliament, with its own majority against the government, said you will get a, um, an extension to, to Brexit. And then all sorts of debates about whether or not the government was going to break the law. And I'm sure many of us were talking to journalists where they were saying, well, what can anyone do if the government breaks the law on this? And you end up in this really crazy down the rabbit hole type world where you're sort of saying, well, they have to. Um, and it leads to sort of interesting areas where somebody asks you on news nights whether or not, you know, the Queen can sack the Prime Minister uh, if they break the law, as happened to our colleague, Hannah. Um, so that's the other one. And then the third one, though, I think that we need to, to think about is, you know, there is this pushing against the rules um, or the conventions as they exist, probing at them, questioning them, um, thinking about the institutions and whether or not they work. But I think you also need to ask what lies behind that. Are there shifting sands that are going on that mean that some of these conventions that exist in the past are sort of struggling to exist? And, I, and you have to think both there about the political actors involved. Um, we saw recently, obviously, with um, Boris Johnson, you know, on the back foot over Partygate and briefing coming out of number 10 saying that um, he's got a direct mandate from the people and almost implying as if the role of the party in deciding whether or not he remained as party leader and therefore the role of the commons in deciding whether or not he remained as prime minister wasn't as important as a general election vote. And obviously throughout Brexit, we had the same of referendum versus general election. Um, so there's sort of probing at the edges there on some of these issues. But I think you also need to look at the public. We can come to debating public opinion of whether or not 
actually self-restraint isn't enough for them and they're looking for somebody with a hard and fast rule or an enforcer to say, no, you can't do this. And, and through lots of these debates, that's what we've been seeing. So it's not just as simple as saying, you know, rules have been broken, how dare you stop doing it, the constitution works. It's actually, you've got to really probe at what, what's going on behind this. That's great, great, Catherine. I think so much that we want to unpack um, in, in our discussion. I'm going to turn to you now, Meg. I mean, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on whether you agree with how sort of Kath has conceptualized that the, the sort of current problem or challenge that we're trying to grapple with, but also sort of from your perspective as an expert on parliament and someone who's really observed what's been going on in parliament over the last few years and seeing how that sort of these challenges of understanding those rules and how rules might change depending on how actors sort of decide to behave, sort of how that's played out um, in recent recent years. Yeah, okay. So if we go back to, you, you, you asked a question right at the beginning in the introduction, whether the good chaps model still works. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it's worth stopping and unpacking what we mean by the good chaps model a bit here. Kath has articulated that, and I mean, broadly, in answer to your question just now, yes, I essentially agree with pretty much everything Kath said, and she's stolen some of the best lines already. Damn it. <laughs> uh, Sorry. I'll try and say something different. Um, but I, I would ask three questions about this good, chaps this good chaps theory. I mean, you say, does it still work? Mm. One question I think is, did it ever exist? Um, and I'm not historian, unlike Kath, but um, the historian Robert Saunders wrote a piece not so long ago saying, you know, based on various historical examples, he thinks it never existed. It was, mm. it was a myth. They weren't such good chaps, actually. Um, but then it seems to be a term traceable to kind of the mid-1980s, um, according to what Hennessy says. And... That's quite a long time ago in constitutional terms. A hell of a lot has changed since then. So I think there's a valid question, does it still exist? Can we still, is, is that still the framework of our system? I mean, since then, particularly, obviously, the reforms of the new Labour years, mm. you know, there's a list as long of your, as your arm of things which have been codified. Mm. Uh, we've got a Human Rights Act. We've got a Supreme Court. You know, we've got devolution. Um, we've got all, all manner of new kind of regulatory frameworks, regulation of elections and referendums, an electoral commission. Then you've got these kind of softer regulators like the Committee on Standards in Public Life, the House of Lords Appointments Commission, and so on. And you've got the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, although we're in the process perhaps of, of dismantling that. So I think it's important in these, we might come on to this a bit more later perhaps, it's important to distinguish in these debates between codification and entrenchment, mm. what I would call entrenchment. There is an awful lot more codified than there used to be. We have plenty of written rules. Some of them are in kind of guidance documents and, and that kind of thing, but a lot of them are in statute. Mm -hmm. um, there's very little that's enforceable by the courts on parliament. That's the entrenchment part, which we still don't have. Um, and then I think the other question, particularly given the level of change that we have had, is the one that Kath has already alluded to, as to how different are we in this regard, because every system relies on people following the rules, whether they're unwritten rules or written rules. And, and a, lot of the, um, a lot of the controversies that we've had in recent years, some of them have been about unwritten rules, like the prorogation is, is the mm. obvious kind of example of that. But some of them have actually been direct challenges to, to written rules. So you talked about the, 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 that episode um, of uh, Boris Johnson suggesting that if he was subject to a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons, he might dare the Queen to sack him. Mm. Now, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act wrote down in law that you cannot survive a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons. Maybe it didn't get it quite right, but that was the intention of the Act. So we're actually talking about not not acting contrary to some sort of good chap convention anymore. We're talking about not following the law. I would see that as quite parallel to something that Kath, uh, again, kind of referred to, glanced by, which is the equivalent in the States of a president refusing potentially to leave the White House mm. if he loses an election. You know, where's the difference there? And yet they have the classic written constitution and we have the classic unwritten constitution so you go to these kind of questions that Kath 
is referring to about what if people don't follow the law. Of course, we've also seen with the Ben Act, um, threats to not comply with domestic law, and then we've seen threats to not comply with um, international law in things like the Internal Markets Bill. So I think it's quite important, actually, now not to see this as a uniquely British disease and not to trace it back to some peculiarity of our weird constitution, but actually to see it as something in a way more sinister, which is part of an international movement um, whereby there are leaders who do not want to follow even the written rules and who want to tear up the written rules and who want to tear up the kind of constraints that act upon them, be it the judiciary, um, be it, um, you know, uh, trying to avoid parliamentary scrutiny, etc. And so I think if we think that we're going to solve this problem by doing something about our kind of British exceptionalism, we're looking in the wrong place. I think this is part of a much bigger global trend, um, and we're, we're deluding ourselves a bit if we think that some, by writing some things down, we're going to make this go away. It's a much bigger cultural problem about the state of democracy and um, kind of respecting constitutional democracy, constraints on executive power. That's, I mean, it's really interesting if uh, quite pessimistic take <laughs> on where, where we're at. I mean, I guess just coming back on that, and this is something maybe we can, I can ask others on the panel. I mean, pitching it like that or thinking about it in that way, are there things that we can do? And, and I guess there is, there is a question that has come in asking, you know, is this down to the behaviour of one man, i.e. Boris Johnson? If he were to go, could you go back to sort of resurrecting the idea of good chaps? But the way that you've sort of framed it, Meg, is that you think it is bigger than that. It's not just about sort of what's happening in this country, this one prime minister. I mean, is, is that a fair reflection of what you've said? But also, can, can we look ahead to what we maybe can do within the realm of this country and this constitution, this process that we, our political process that we have? Mm. Good, good questions. Um, I think the answers are really hard, which is why we may be tempted to try and reach for things which are easy and tangible and achievable in our country. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a distraction, actually. Um, in answer to your question about Boris Johnson, I think it's a really, really interesting question. I think he's a perpetrator of some of this, but I think he's also a product of something. I think if you look at the Brexit referendum is clearly really, really important in this story. Um, and so Andrew wrote this um, nice pamphlet uh, with Peter Hennessy on the good chaps theory, which, which he might refer to. And there's a lot of referring back to the causes, what, what, was, what was triggered by the Brexit referendum. And I think that's a very valid, valid analysis. But I don't think the Brexit referendum was the beginning of the story. The Brexit referendum in itself was an example of people not being prepared to trust representative democracy and negotiation in our traditional institutions, parliament and politicians, to resolve difficult problems. Um, and you know, a referendum by its nature is about bypassing those kind of traditional routes. And you know, while referendums, we've talked a lot, we've worked a lot on referendums, as you referred to, they, they have their uses. They're not, they're not fundamentally, you know, inherently evil devices, but they can, they are populist devices. They can be populist devices because they're kind of anti-elite. They're taking decisions out of the hands of elites and giving them to the people. And often they pretend that there are easy answers. Um, and so it was the run-up to the referendum, I think, the, the, the things that gave us the referendum that were the beginning of this story, and the referendum kind of put boosters on it, and the referendum then resulted in Boris Johnson, who kind of gave it another set of boosters. So it's a long story in this country, and it's also an international story. Thanks, Meg. Andrew, sorry, you've been sitting very patiently. Um, and I, I would be quite interested, you know, you are someone who has, I feel like, you know, been more on the side of further codification and in favour of further codification. I mean, you know, as I said, Meg has sort of set out quite a pessimistic um, uh, sort of analysis of where we are now. I mean, do you think there are sort of solutions to be found in looking at further sort of codification in some areas in the UK constitution or, or I mean, you know, how far do you agree with Meg's sort of analysis of where we're at? As you say, I've, I've advocated a written constitution. I would still advocate one, but I think we've got to be very careful not to 
sell it as some kind of patent remedy for every... I remember, you know, 2009, the MPs' expenses scandal, people were saying, this is, this is the moment for written constitution. I don't really see why, why it was. Yeah. We've seen that. We, and also, we saw that in 2019. In fact, I think the three of us were on a panel in the Cabinet Office or somewhere talking about whether Brexit is the moment for written constitution. So you've got to be careful not to, as with any of these things, as with, for instance, referendums, all these things at different points get sold as solutions to things where whether or not they're a good idea in themselves, they may not be the solution. So that's, that's one point. Uh, another point is that uh, some of the problems we're talking about here wouldn't probably really be engaged by what would be likely to be put in a, in a written constitution. Mm -hmm. But some of them might be. I mean, it, again, it depends what the scope, what we, what we think the extent of the problem is. For instance, if we pick one problem that's cropped up recently, you could argue the Prime Minister's been misusing the role they have in, in getting people into the House of Lords. Now, it's possible, and I'd defer to Meg on this, but a written constitution might include some kind of measures about how you appoint people to the House of Lords. I'm not, let's not get into you know, how it would do it, but that's something that might be in a written constitution. Whether it would solve that problem, I don't know. But then there are other things that, you know, for instance, uh, you must not mislead Parliament. Would that be in a written constitution or codified constitution? Maybe it would. Would it be justiciable? Would a court actually be able to say you've misled Parliament, therefore you've got to resign? I doubt it in any jurisdiction. So we have to be careful about what we're doing. So that's one thing. And I'd add to that, but in, in terms of the... I mean, I've, I don't disagree with, with things that have been said. I think when we're trying to... It's useful to think about the long-term historical tendencies here. This, the good chap theory, I think... In as far as it's got validity, it certainly shouldn't be about politicians who were wonderful people in the good old days and used to behave themselves. You know, obviously that's a, that's a, that would be a very that's a kind of straw person sort of argument to, to float against it because I don't think I don't think anyone sensible would say that was what it meant. But I think it is reasonable to say that politicians, perhaps, or some politicians now recognise that the costs for misbehaviour aren't actually that great. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something which certainly the current incumbent, now maybe that was true all along, who knows, but maybe there's a psychological change. And that's a cultural thing, which again, isn't about whether, it, well, it may be tangentially connected to whether or not we've got a written constitution, but as was said, you know, the US, same thing. So not behaving yourself, apparently so far, doesn't carry, we might find out differently after the May elections, but apparently so far doesn't carry the cost it might once have done. And if we're thinking about has there been a change, it is interesting to ask the kind of things that it's pretty clear that the present Prime Minister has got up to and, and is, you know, in the past pretty clear he has got up to and people around him have got up to, would someone have survived in the job? Would they have gone by this point? But also, I think there's a prior question, would this person have been allowed anywhere near the job in the first place? And I think there, if, you know, if you're coming to, to looking at, and this is, I think this touches a bit on what Meg was saying about uh, direct and representative democracy, we're in a position where whether we agree with it or not, the elite have less of a role, not only in making decisions that might be taken out to referendums, and that argument actually you know, goes back to the 19th century as well, but the elite ha have less of a role in deciding who their leader's going to be. Whereas the parliamentary parties of the two main parties once would have dominated that process, we've seen a shift to the members of those parties choosing who the leader is. So whereas once, you know, in 1963, uh, for some reason, uh, uh, Rab Butler doesn't become prime minister and, uh, and Alec Douglas Hume does, mm. and no one can quite tell you what the reason is, but there's something about Rab Butler which doesn't quite uh, 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 fit with what people you know, want in a Prime Minister. Well, if Rab Butler was uh, in some way ineligible, what does that say about the current Prime Minister? Yet they're able to uh, go into the job. So, and that's, I think, one of the reasons for that is the members of parties have a much bigger role in this. So, you know, these are things, if we're looking at has anything changed, and what are the changes, and is there a longer cultural change? Those are the things I advocate looking at. What we can do about it is more complicated, but there are measures. I mean, the, the, the Committee on Standards in Public Life, I think, put forward a, a good set of measures for dealing with some of these issues that I would certainly, I don't think that'll be the end of the story, 
but I would certainly kind of put them forward as something that, that merits close attention and would include statutory measures. And, you know, after all, you know, that, this kind of thing's happened before. And if, you know, uh, uh, Kath was talking about breakdowns in conventions previously, well, I think a really good example there is why have we got the Parliament and Act 1911, which is kind of cornerstone of our constitution, and in a funny way did include entrenchment within it because it means that you can't extend the life of a parliament without the House of Lords agreeing to it, which is, you know, it, it's a form of entrenchment of a kind, or you know, whether it would work under strain, I don't know. But uh, there, they, what happened there was the conventions around what it was appropriate for the House of Lords to do in relation to legislation, in relation to a budget, broken down, no one could really agree what it was, so in the end, uh, and there was discussion then about can we sort it out through referendums, thankfully they didn't opt for that then, but uh, in the end uh, they introduced the Parliament Act which sets out very clearly what it, what it was, so these yeah. things can happen in response to breakdowns in conventions. I mean, I guess sort of picking up on that, does, do you think that this is a moment where we might be able to look at something that sort of constitutional change that maybe is on a sort of bigger scale? Um, I mean, looking, Meg, you talked about the labour reforms, you know, there was, there was a lot of change introduced in the early, early 2000s. I mean, do we, do the, does the panel think that this is a moment where we might be able to advocate for sort of more sweeping changes or wholesale changes to the way that, that our constitution operates, or does it not quite feel like that yet? I'd be quite interested in, in that sort of question of, is this a constitutional moment for the, for the change that maybe we think is necessary? And I'd be interested in all of your perspectives on that. So, I mean, Andrew, if you have any thoughts or if Kath well, or Meg want to jump in. We are going through a constitutional moment. The constitution has changed immensely. Mm -hmm. And you know, often when, when I've advocated in the past, I've written a code of a constitution, whatever you call it, one of the comebacks is, well, we don't never have big crises in this country, so we don't need one. Well, we have one and it's changing immensely. And who knows where that will lead, mm -hmm. but obviously, the question then, to, apart from what do you actually want in this, in this moment, you know, what do you want in this constitution, is who's going to be doing it. And right now, the people doing it are not necessarily the people I would, I would want doing it. So, you know, it, that's a question of process. How do you get there? But is, there's no harm in advocating it. Mm. Kath or Mag? Kath, do you have any thoughts? I mean, yeah, I agree with, with Andrew. You've got two different kinds of things. One is, obviously, conventions are ebbing, flowing, changing, whatever. We're looking at issues piecemeal. You've got potentially piecemeal codification, and it is a question of just how much can you do you want to control the direction of travel, and how much do you want it to be a larger project that brings more people into it, or does it become an elite exercise? Does it become an executive-driven exercise? Does it become an accidental exercise? You know, so there's there's all sorts of questions about um, that. I agree with with Andrew about how you control it and so forth. Um, and I think public perception of that is, is important. And actually, just to bring it back to something Meg said about Brexit not being the beginning of the story, um, there is no beginning, as Andrew says. You know, there's long historical evolution. We can all come up with lots of examples. I'm sure I can come up with several where Churchill broke conventions on collective responsibility among many, many other constitutional conventions. Um, but actually, I often, in terms of the epoch, I go back to 2010, um, and there's two reasons. One is um, seeing some of this pushing against conventions. I'm always remembering, again, we were all doing media around hung parliament, you know, mass panic of everyone about how would we cope in this country with an unclear election result. And I remember Nick Clegg. And Nick Clegg was pushing that there are rules about how a government is formed and coalition negotiations occur. And they concerned about which party would be able to negotiate with which, you know, another party, about how important vote share was in terms of doing that. And then particularly, obviously, at the point at which Gordon Brown resigned and therefore forced David Cameron's hand to become prime minister, frustration there about... Um, you know, the idea that that hadn't, shouldn't have happened so quickly and they should have been able to finish the coalition negotiations. But there weren't any such rules. You know, the, the UK process is a sort of gravitational kind of, we just sort of make it up as we go along. The one constitutional convention was that a sitting prime minister gets the first chance to negotiate. So Brown was able to try and continue in office if he wants to do so. And that was one side of it. And the other side of it was there was a great conspiracy theory about how the cabinet manual, which had uh, this draft public, um, chapter of which had been produced before the election, was a conspiracy to get the Lib Dems into power because it put emphasis on the prime minister must stay in office 
because you can't be without a prime minister. Now, I was part of those conversations, and all it was was sort of pointing out politicians, please don't go mad. Please remember we need a prime minister, and please remember that these are the ways in which it can operate. So it wasn't, you know, obviously it wasn't an attempt to get um, the Lib Dems into power. And as we saw later, with later hung parliaments, you know, you can form a minority government. Cameron could have formed a minority government. It was a political choice. But the other reason why I think 2010 is interesting is because it kind of opened people's minds to big constitutional drama in a way that we hadn't for a while. We'd had lots of constitutional stuff going on under New Labour, mm. but it often been about either the executive or about sort of particular aspects of um, devolution or about sort of reform of things, like talking about House of Lords reform or whatever, but not really that kind of drama where people were like, oh my God, what's the constitution? What does it say? How do we cope? And I think it kind of, like, I don't know, maybe it made it exciting to people. And maybe that's been... And, then, and also, it very much put it into the hands of Parliament and a kind of uncertainty about, you know, we've gone through coalition, minority governments, um, all sorts of dramas around that. And I think that's just kept bringing this idea of constitutional crisis into people's minds, even when some of the stuff happening was kind of normal constitutional madness. Um, so, so I do think that that's, it's been a much longer journey in terms of where we are at the moment of bringing that. I think it's different when you're talking about some of the pushing against norms like the idea about whether or not direct democracy versus representative democracy is more dominant and, and also the particular vote leave ethos of, you know, do anything to get this over the line. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's a different phenomenon. But I think there are deeper currents at play. Yeah, although I think I mean I think that's really I think it's really important to look back at that sort of historical or at least you know recent history, but looking back at the longer lens, not just seeing it from starting at the referendum, is what Meg also talked about. One of the things I guess I'm, I was struck by by what Andrew was talking about was the sort of the problem where the costs for misbehaviour aren't as great, and that mm -hmm. seems to be the the challenge or the struggle that feels most uh, pertinent right now. I mean, you know, we haven't mentioned Partygate by name, but, you know, some of the recent scandals around both, you know, both behaviour of ministers and, and the prime minister, but also of MPs in parliament, you know, the question around what is appropriate as an MP in terms of second jobs and how you should behave. And, and I wonder whether that has sort of might have at least taken the conversation maybe beyond just the traditional constitutional circles. Yeah. And I'd be quite interested, Meg, you know, the work the Constitution Unit has been doing around the citizens' assemblies and engaging with the public on constitutional questions, but also mm. the survey you did mm. about what public expectations are of how we want our politicians to behave and whether that sparks a sort of bigger conversation about, about the sort of norms and conventions that underpin our, our constitution. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked that up because that was, I, I thought that was a really important point that Andrew made that I, I wanted to pick up. The, the, the point about tolerating bad behavior. Um, because I think if you look back, you know, historically, um, I think you can trace that back to, you know, it's decades that we've seen coming through in polls, distrust in politicians, believing that politicians are not honest, not acting in the public interest, and so on. And I think that what that does is set things up. It's, it, it opens up a space where somebody who perhaps isn't honest and doesn't act in the public interest can step in and take a political role, and nobody thinks that that's weird. Um, it, facilitates, it facilitates that. Um, in the same way as I think... Um, you know, the, the Brexit situation, the crisis, the total crisis that we got into with Brexit facilitated Boris Johnson's arrival because Theresa May had been trying to do traditional politics, which was based on negotiating and compromising and, find, you know, both with the EU and within Parliament on a very intractable question and finding it impossible to resolve and... Who came along but a kind of buccaneering leader who was prepared to say, sweep all that away, there's an easy solution, we're going to get it done. Now, the fact that he had actually been one of those in Parliament who had been blocking her deal um, did not prevent him running in a general election on a manifesto that said um, that Parliament had been trying to thwart the will of the British people. So in doing that, he's, he's kind of, he's profiting from that bad situation, trying to pretend that there's an easy answer to a difficult 
problem, but he's also actually actively building on what we know about public opinion, which is that they, we hold politicians in low regard, we hold parliament in low regard, and it was able to be painted as parliament's problem that we had got here and that somehow we have to have somebody to beat parliament. Now, back at that time, the Hansard Society did this rather terrifying poll that got very widely reported that showed that 54% of the public would support having a strong leader who was willing to break the rules, which was a very kind of strong endorsement of that strategy that came along and prorogued Parliament um, and looked like he was acting you know, in, in, in line with the public mood. But the poll that we did, um, which we published in January, that we actually put in the field last year, it's important to say that it, it was in the field way before Partygate, mm. although there had been lots of other instances of as we've been saying, you know, rule-breaking or alleged rule-breaking of various kinds, norm-breaking of various kinds. We confronted the public with choices between, well, firstly, we asked them what were the, who did they trust? Um, and in line with previous polls, they trusted essentially unelected, politically neutral people. So if top of the table were government scientific advisors, and then after that, judges and civil servants were quite high up, and the prime minister was down at the bottom. Uh, along with journalists. Um, then we asked them what uh, qualities they, they wanted in politicians, and the thing that came out top was honesty, mm -hmm. and the thing that came out second was admitting when you've made mistakes. Um, above, you know, in a table of about 15 different possible things, including, you know, being clever and charismatic and delivering policy and all manner of other things. The most striking result in the poll, to me, was the one where we actually asked people, we gave people forced choice questions. We asked them what's important to a democracy. Um, in a healthy democracy, should politicians always act within the rules? Or should they focus on delivery, even if that sometimes means breaking the rules? I think we know which one of those is the Johnson Doctrine. But 75% chose always following the rules, and only 6% chose delivery, even if that means sometimes breaking the rules, which I think is directly contrary to what that Hansard Society study found. So it feels like there is a mood out there that people want something different. Um, we also found a lot of support for, um, in various ways, sort of judicial intervention. So in some ways, that suggests that there is a public support for a more rule-based system and perhaps for a more judicialized system. But I don't think it's an entirely positive story because I think a lot of that comes from basically wanting to take power out of the hands of politicians, mm -hmm. not liking politicians. It's part of the same decline in a way. Mm. And if you try and create a system where you do have entrenchment and you do have judges enforcing things on politicians, I think the danger is you create a very kind of fragile, brittle system where actually it's quite easy for populist leaders to present themselves as representing the people against unelected elite judges, which is what's been going on in a lot of other places around the world that have written constitutions, which, as I've said before, are not you know, free of the kind of problems that we've got in this country. So you asked me a long time ago, what do I think the solutions are? And I said, I think the solutions are not easy and there's a risk that we reach for solutions which are too easy, but I think they're kind of international solutions that we need to look for. There's a crisis in democracy all over the world, and we need to be talking with other people about how to reinstate trust in democracy, and particularly in representative institutions, and handing it all to judges might be tempting, and it might be partly the solution. I think we do need to tighten up some of the rules. We do need to tighten up some of the regulation, but it cannot be the whole answer. We need to rebuild faith in democracy in all of its messiness, negotiation, compromise, everybody not getting what they want, not being able to give simple solutions, um, which we've, we've begun to find increasingly unattractive. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the, some of the questions coming through have also asked about sort of the role of the civil service. Also, there is a sort of question around the elections bill and what that means to the electoral commission. Like, you know, as you say, it, it is a sort of more complex picture. Um, it's not just about judges. There are also other organizations or individuals who play a role in sort of trying to enforce good behavior. And I wonder if, if sort of the panel think there's a sort of opportunity there in terms of thinking about 
either the role of those individuals or organizations, or should we be concerned, as Mega said, that actually putting some of that into the hands of either bureaucrats or, or sort of people who are appointed based on either, you know, the patronage of, of certain politicians, whether that creates its own problems, I'd be quite interested. Mm. I don't know. I think I, I've yeah. talked for too long, so let me just throw something in really briefly here. I think the Electoral Commission is quite a nice example of this, mm -hmm. that yes, we codified it and we put it into law, and, and that it's a, it's a regulator with more teeth than many mm. of the other regulators. Mm. But it has also been hugely controversial with certain politicians who want to do it down. And there are attempts at the moment to weaken it, mm. uh, which may well go through Parliament. Yeah. yeah. Andrew, do you... Yeah, which actually does lead on to an interesting question as to whether the Electoral Commission is something, an example of something you might want to actually entrench in some way so that you know, it's harder to interfere with. I don't know. But I think on the civil service, I think this is an interesting question because I think in our system, partly in the absence of a written constitution, partly because we have this concentration of power in Parliament, and if you've, got a, if you've got a majority in the House of Commons, you don't have limitless power, but you can achieve quite a lot, I think, relative to, say, a US president who doesn't have you know, the backing of Congress or whatever. But I think we've tended to look to the civil service as almost this kind of substitute for that as an upholder of norms, and that can somehow impose things on ministers. And I think it's just unfair because that's not, you know, obviously we, you know, I'm sure most of the people in the room have read the civil service code. That's not what it says, is it? It says, you, you know, ultimately, you, within the laws, subject to certain other rules, you do what the minister wants in you and you tell them the truth. You don't, you don't conceal inconvenient facts, but you do what they want. And if, if you don't like it in the end, after everything else has been exhausted, you, you're supposed to go. So, and that's, that's, that's as it should be in my view, because that's our system of, of accountability via the minister onto parliament. But I think if we're looking to the civil service to be a kind of substitute for a sort of constitutional ombudsman or whatever, then that's not really fair on them. And I think, well, I think at the moment it's going the other direction and they're being targeted and you know, are worrying about you know, the pressure that the civil service is subject to and has been subject to the number of departures scene level. So I think that's an issue. And on the point about, so that does again take us back to the courts. One thing I would say is that uh, a, you know, if we're gonna get, you know, we, we, I've been asked to talk to the codified constitution briefs, so I'll say this, what it might do for judges actually is create more clarity around their role because at the moment it's not sure, it's not clear how far they are supposed to go. So depending on which legal theories you talk to, if you talk to a kind of radical common constitutional uh, law theorist, they'll say the courts, if they want to, can dispense with an act of parliament and declare parliamentary sovereignty invalid. I don't think that's true. I don't think they'll do that. But on the other extreme, you know, certain uh, ex-civil servants that we know and love think the executive should basically be able to do whatever it wants. So there's, and the court shouldn't get anywhere near it. So there's a lot of confusion, I think, about what it is proper for the courts to do. And depending on who you've got in the Supreme Court at the time, it might go quite a long way, as in the two Miller cases, or, or it might go a lot uh, less distance as, as the current kind of outfit. Now, in, so what a written constitution might do is at least create a bit more legitimacy about what they are supposed to do, what are the limits on what they can do, and you know, not leave them exposed because you know, let's face it, nobody wants to be on the front page of the Daily Mail, and you know they ended up there, and I don't think it was really their fault. And uh, and there we have it. And the person who wrote that particular article, enemies of the people, I think ended up uh, having a party in Number Ten when he was leaving Number Ten. That's another another story, isn't it? But uh, so uh, that's what that's why I think the point about. Judicial overreach is obviously something we have to take seriously. But if you look at if you look at all the most terrible countries to live in throughout history, I can't think any one of them the problem was that the judiciary was too powerful or too independent. I think you'll probably find uh, that the opposite is the case. So I think the problem of judicial overreach has been enormously overstated, but it, you know, it needs taking seriously. No, definitely. It's interesting. Uh, there's a question actually from Alice that says, picking up on the discussions about cultural issues and conventions, norms resting on politicians, relying on politicians acting with integrity and honour, is there a danger that a push for greater codification erodes those expectations in a way that's also damaging? And Kath, I'd be quite interested in your thoughts on that and sort of what you might lose, I guess, by pursuing a codification, a sort of route of further yeah, codification I, do, I do think it's a good question I mean, one of the things that I I think I mentioned to you Maddie earlier is one of my worries about codification it's not that I'm opposed to it if we as a country decided to go down that route then we have done so I just think we should do so with our eyes open to what else that brings with it um, that you then need to think about but but one of my concerns is that basically constitutional debates will 
just reflect the, the nature of constitutional debate on Twitter at the moment, which um, could be exhausting, <laughs> frankly. Um, so I, and I, I wouldn't like it if we got into a situation like that. But, um, but that said, it's reflecting the reality of the discussions that we're having. I do think that you've got to have some kind of norms and behaviour, and it doesn't matter whether it's codified or not. Um, and I think, you know, the last year on Partygate, I mean, you know, on one level, it, it's a sort of farcical situation to be in. On another level, it's a massively emotive and really, you know, difficult um, issue that the government created for itself because COVID was such a, you know, horrific experience for so many people. Um, but it, the other thing that has shown is that norms and expectations do still exist. There are lines in the sand. There is... Um, a public reaction. There is a poll reaction when you are seen to have done stuff you ought not to have done. Um, and I think that's really fundamentally important to this stuff. And I mean, one of the things that, that vexes me when we have the codification debates is that people conflate different things. And some are, you know, understand what you mean by a journey to codification, what that brings with it, and, and what the, you know, the, the, the issues are in, in the journey to it. Some people, it's just not understanding what the Constitution currently is, and it's because we need better education and better institutional memory when it comes to it. And I think and we saw this with Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, where, you know, some incredible debates that we were having to, to have of explaining some basics of, of parliamentary practice and procedure to people who were in Parliament. Um, so, so I think there is better institutional memory and understanding of the Constitution that does reinforce some of these norms and expectations, and, and that you don't just do it on the basis of, well, we've had it for ages, we must, we must continue to have this principle of the Constitution. Because, no, you shouldn't. It's whether or not it works and whether it's there for a reason, and I think that's what's really important, is explaining to people that... It's, it's there for a higher principle of, you know, democracy, of, you know, the way in which our system of government works or whatever, or it's there because it's efficient, because it works. Collective responsibility, cabinet government, it shouldn't just exist because you don't want to tag the term presidential onto a prime minister. It should exist because it's quite a good way of joining up parts of government. Mm. Um, so I think you've got to get into that. And then the second reason why people sometimes conflate codification is, is when they want to change the constitution and they're talking about codification because it's just, I don't like the current bit and I think it ought to be different. If we codify it, let's change it to the thing. But you need to talk about codifying the current constitution and think about the process of changing it as you codify. And then the third thing I think we need to think about is our constitution has evolved and it has evolved with our institutions and with our culture of politics. And the journey to change that also means changes to that culture of, you know, of, of politics and those institutions. And we need to see how all three go together because you, know, you move to a change in the system of, of voting. You start talking about prime ministers having a direct mandate. Well, what does that mean for parliament? What does that mean for a constituency MP's relationship with their constituents if you're saying that that doesn't really matter anymore? So as soon as you start to get into codification, that does change people's relationship with institutions, their understanding of them, and, and that political culture that has evolved hand in hand with the, the constitution and the, the various solutions that we've come up with. So yeah, more to unpack is what I would say. So there are some questions coming in that I want to bring in that will also throw in some more dimensions to this. But I also just say to those in the room, if anyone wants to ask a question at this stage, do feel free to put up your hand um, as well. Um, but there's a sort of one on electoral reform and, and one on the Queen. We haven't talked about the, the Queen yeah. yet. Um, and you've always got to bring up the Queen in these sorts of discussions. Um, but one, uh, Meg sort of directed to you really from, from Bern, Vernon Bogdanor, and, and he, he sort of said that <laughs> referendums occur when when the representative system is not working. Um, so is it that are so sort of pointing to Brexit and sort of remain versus the leave sort of result? And is it that it's our representative system that's at fault? Should we be thinking about electoral reform, proportional representation, and looking at other countries and the way that they, they operate? I'm afraid my stock answer to questions like that um, is it, it goes back to the exceptionalism point and the, the universalism point that, you know, there are countries all over Europe um, that use proportional representation and their democracies are not necessarily in a better state than ours. You know, I think these institutional solutions are not the answer. I think it's too simplistic. 
I do, I agree about referendums. And of course, you know, if we go back to, you know, the, the root of referendums on Europe lies before 2016. It lies back in the 1970s. And mm. so if we're talking about a sort of long drift away from trust in representative institutions, the, the roots are very, very, are very, very long. Um, but I would just steer away. I do think we need some institutional solutions. I do think we need some strengthening of regulators, but I think we need to look at the cultural solutions. And I am aware, and it was a thought triggered by when Kath was speaking in terms of sort of cultural change, I, I think. I'm aware I've been negative and I'm not coming up with answers and we do need to come up with answers. And so I think let me try and say something that's a little bit positive that I think that there are opportunities shown in the data that I referred to in the poll that we published, which I should have waved this beautiful report. If anybody wants the detail, it's on our website, uh, the Democracy in the UK After Brexit project and, and its mass poll. Um, there's an opportunity presented by that data for politicians to step in and say, we need integrity in politics. Mm. Um, you know, there's clearly a demand out there for politicians who are better, who care about this stuff, who care about standards, who believe in checks and balances, who want to do better. And I think that that's obviously an opportunity for opposition parties. Um, it's also potentially, and we don't know what's gonna happen, particularly given the Ukraine situation, but it is potentially an opportunity for a future conservative leader whenever one of them is selected. Um, and you know, electoral opportunities do in the end act as quite an important motivator for politicians. And I think that this polling shows that, you know, coming along and saying we are going to do politics differently, we do need to get back to standards. Mm. And I think more honesty, I've been calling for this for, you know, I wrote a pamphlet on this in 2005, that we need more honesty from politicians about what politics is and the fact that it is difficult and there aren't easy answers. And while I think, you know, what we've seen is a sort of pushing to the edges, isn't it? You know, polarization, we're seeing it all over the world. Social media has been mentioned. We see it on social media. You know, people taking sides, Johnson versus Corbyn or Leave versus Remain or, you know, pushing to the extremes. I think a push to the center and to, uh, you know, compromise and collaboration would have some support out there. It would have some enemies as well, but I think that's what we need politicians to do. Thanks, Meg. And then, as I promised, a question on, on the Queen. Um, and Why are you so, looking at me? I'm, Kath, I don't know, but <laughs> I mean, Andrew's off, feel free to jump in. Yeah. Um, some anonymous has said uh, that in some countries, a head of state is there to intervene. Um, you know, our, our head of state, as she is a monarch, is unable to be as activist as it's unpalatable and against some of those norms. So could part of our problem be that we lack a figure with our own mandate to sort of keep watch mm -hmm. on the constitution? And I'm quite interested to say, Kath, I'll start with you, but Andrew, I'd be interested to come to you on that as well. Yeah, I mean, it is, um, it's a discussion, Jill Rutter's in the audience, that, that she and I have had, and she put it very eloquently, that it's one of the um, it, ironies, really, of the Queen is that... Um, you know, both she does have this kind of constitutional backstop role, but at the same time, the, the, her need to remain apolitical means it is very difficult for her to, to act. And there's plenty of written about this. Antoemi's written a very good book looking at, at, at this particular um, aspect. I, um, I don't know. I think it is notable that if you look at governor, governors general elsewhere who like the Queen's representative, it's a slight feeling that they can be a bit more activist because it's almost like, you know, a power given to them. Um, that said, Antoemi's argument is it's the very fact that, you know, she won't use it, but she could, is the reason why, it, and it's quite grey area, is the reason why it works. And if you clarified it completely, then it might, you know, not work as well. So I, don't th I think it goes back to the you've got to figure out what it is that you're wanting in terms of constitutional guardians and which aspects of the constitution they're dealing with. Um, because, you know, horses for courses, there are some aspects on which um, it should be the role of the judges. There are other aspects on which it should be Parliament who have the ultimate say, for instance, on getting rid of the government in its entirety. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, uh, and yes, there are in that aspects which are about the role of a head of state or somebody who, you know, plays a role 
um, that touches upon those all those sort of you know Peter Hennessy who talked about him calls them sort of Heineken the reaching the bits of the Constitution that no other part of it can reach. Um, so so you do need something for that. Mm. We've evolved to have the Queen. And um, so if we don't want to have that, if we wanted to go for a different version of that, we'd have to think about what are all the knock-on effects on the other institutions, on our culture, on our political um, you know, culture and, and, and the way in which it works that could operate in a different way. Mm. Um, I think the more interesting question is just how that evolves after the, the Queen's lifetime and whether or not talking about good chaps theory, mm -hmm. I've evolved this one called the good queen theory, which is that <laughs> a lot of the ways in which all of that operates is because she has developed this, this persona of being apolitical, mm -hmm. of being trustworthy around it. And Charles may inherit that, uh, you know, along with the crown, he may inherit a lot of goodwill around that. But in those situations, in the prorogation crisis, if you had a conflict over who got to be prime minister what then for the role of of, of the monarch um, and I think that is a question that will get opened up more and more in the coming you know years decades or, or whatever I think that's really interesting um, Andrea I'd, I'd be sort of interested in I mean any reflection you have on what Kath has said but also you know given given the role of the queen within our constitution is there a space for some some something that you know the, the courts or, or something else to come through and and play a bit more of an active role in terms of being that watchdog or guardian of the constitution more in its entirety rather than the more piecemeal way that we currently currently sort of do it yeah well i think i mean i don't disagree with any of that and i think but i think the uh we've got a problem in our constitution in that we've actually got two bits of it the house of lords and the monarch, which for different reasons don't feel fully in possession of democratic legitimacy. The lords obviously probably feel more legitimate than they once did, and they do amend things, et cetera, et cetera, and I'll you know, refer you to the work of, of Meg on that point. But uh, it's harder for either of those two things to actually resist a majority in the House of Commons, whatever it, you know, that mm -hmm. happens sometimes, what happens sometimes with the Lords doesn't happen with the Queen. So I think you've got a kind of a, a problem in the Constitution there that you've got whoever's got, and then actually it does come back to our electoral system as well, because whoever can get 40 or percent in an election mm -hmm. has then got a majority in the House of Commons, and then the only thing standing between them and whatever they want to do apart from public opinion is the House of Lords, and then the, the monarch who we can't really expect to do anything. So. But to focus back in on the monarch, mm. uh, the way that worked, and again, this is about a convention breaking down, I think. The convention was you don't embarrass the monarch. You don't bring the monarch into public controversy. And that was, a, if you want to talk about a kind of classic good chap, and I know the problems with the term, and I think, you know, in a way, the term reflects the culture it came out of. But mm. uh, the, the good chap would have avoided doing that. So someone who uses a monarchical power to prorogue parliament in a time of uh, political intense division and you know, the end of article 50 coming up mm. is in my view clearly overstepping that and willfully bringing the powers of the monarch into uh, controversy and therefore bringing the monarch into controversy and then violating and you'll even find that in the cabinet manual that, that, that they avoid bringing the, uh, the monarch in, into controversy so that there we have a convention failing. And if I can very, very briefly go back to Dicey, I remember Dicey, A.V. Dicey used to say, the, the purpose of conventions is, if you, if, you don't break a, if you break a convention, you then become in danger of breaking the law. And I always wondered, what on earth does Dicey act? I never quite, am I missing something here? What, what does that actually mean? But I think actually we've seen that illustrated. Yeah. They broke a convention, they prorogued parliament, and then it turned out they had broken the law because the court stepped in and sorted out. So for me there, the court were doing their job, but they got attacked for it. Mm -hmm. So this is why we got where, you know, I don't know if it's fully answering your question, but that's why I think a written constitution could maybe attempt to deal with some of those areas of where the courts can get involved and when they can do it. And obviously having a monarchy is entirely compatible with a, with a written constitution around the Commonwealth, Europe, and things like that can happen. So it's not, you know, it's not about necessarily about establishing a republic. That's a different debate for another day. But... I think there the courts did come in, and that, that's an example of it, where they, I think, actually came in in a good way, but in a way that felt a bit uncomfortable. But that partly stems from uh, the monarchy and the households not quite having the legitimacy to block uh, the commons or, or the government at that point from doing something. And the, the last line of, of defence became the courts. And, of course, they may now be under attack as the last line of defence. And I don't know, you know where that leaves us, who we're relying on then. Yeah, 
No, it's a really interesting point. Kath, did you want to jump in? Uh, just, I mean, the, the prorogation one is a good example, though, the embarrass the Queen part of it, of actually culture did come back into play because it was a strong sort of call going up, even, you know, amongst Conservatives as much as others of, oh, my God, what have you done embarrassing the Queen? And which, in a yeah. sense, seems quite, you know, laughable. Yeah. But it reinforced it. And so we're back to the situation where... But it was where... followed by an electoral landslide. Yeah. It was, yeah, but... but no resignations not, from the Cabinet. No, but I still think it's still there in people's minds. So I just mean that the idea that they have been completely trampled over is, you know, it's not necessarily true. I think some things are still there as conventions. Similar, like I said, on Partygate, where, you know, you have seen a reaction to it. Um, and I think similar on the, the, the sort of pushback on the Patterson case, where there was such a massive... Um, backlash against what the government was doing, it reinforced those sort of convention standards, etc., around the role of MPs, not whipping your MPs on, on a free vote like that and so forth. So I do think there are some things where you can look at, yes, okay, we wouldn't have wanted the contra controversy, but norms have been reinforced. That is a very good point on which to end, because we have come up to our full hour. Um, I'm slightly disappointed that we didn't quite manage to get as far as to let's just write it all down Early and have a, have a constitution, but clearly there is more that we need to discuss, and maybe we can push, push, push ahead into that. And there are still lots of questions that have come in that we haven't been able to get through, but also lots of really interesting comments and reflections on the discussion. So thank you, everyone at, at home who has sent those in um, and, and really interesting for us, us to reflect on. Um, this is, as I say, very much the start of um, this review that we are doing at the Institute for Government in partnership with the Bennett Institute, and we will be holding more events. Another theme that we've touched on but really want to get more into is this question about public engagement and how public understands what the Constitution is and, and might need to engage further. So do watch this space. Uh, keep an eye on our website. We'll be, we will be holding more events, but I will just say thank you very much uh, for tuning in, and thank you very much to our panel for your really insightful contributions. Thank you.